With a few notable exceptions, the TV sitcom isn't really my thing. I find the three camera format to be staid, I dislike laugh tracks, and I tend to find the tropes associated with American sitcoms to be tired and irritating for the most part. That being said, I do think that I understand at least part of the reason why other people enjoy the format. Sitcoms often remind me of the gag-a-day newspaper comic strips, stuff like Dilbert or Garfield. An interesting thing that I learned about Garfield is that it's deliberately constructed to be banal and unfunny. Almost none of the gags will make people laugh or even smile, but they always engage without offending anyone. After a while, Garfield's ubiquitous familiarity transitions to becoming likable. Garfield becomes a steady, static, and comforting presence, almost like a friend. I can't remember the last time I enjoyed a Garfield comic, but I still like Garfield. He's been around since before I was born. I learned to read, at least partially, by going over newspaper comics uh, like Garfield. I watched the holiday specials and the Garfield and Friends cartoon. Garfield's presence feels like a comforting form of stability in an uncertain world, which is very much by design. I imagine that people who rewatch Friends, The Office, or The Golden Girls over and over again on an almost daily basis feel pretty much the same way. You know, that's kind of how we define the comfort watch or the hangout movie. This all being conceded, there are a few sitcoms that I use as a comfort watch. Most of them are animated and as such avoid most of the sitcom trappings I dislike while presenting more interesting visuals than what a live action TV budget usually allows. Bob's Burgers certainly counts among such programs, as I feel it has funny jokes, punchy storytelling, and characters that I like spending time with. Uh, it comes off as something that's very cozy and low stakes for me. So when the inevitable movie came out, I assumed that I'd wind up liking it without having my mind blown by it, as I usually feel while having the show on in the background while I do chores or fold laundry or whatever. And yeah, that's essentially what happened. Still, there's lots to say about what's under the surface of this particular IP, and we'll be exploring that in this podcast episode. My name is Ryan, this is A Real Deep Dive. All right, joining me on this one is my sister Cheryl. Hello. You're a pretty big Bob's Burgers person. It's a routine part of your regular streaming, and uh, you saw the movie in theaters with your husband. I did, and um, my D&D party. <laughs> you feel in particular that um, your marriage with Pete is comparable to Bob and Linda? Well, I wasn't the person that said that first. Pretty much the entire D&D party said it, and then we were like, no, no, and then we started watching the show through, like, a new lens, and we were like, um, yeah, okay. <laughs> is, yeah, one of the tropes about sitcoms that I don't like, uh, particularly on family sitcoms, is that the wife and the husband basically can't stand each other and always at each other's throats. It's right? It goes back to the dawn of the medium with, like, the Honeymooners and I Love Lucy, where, like, half the plots of them just conniving against each other. And most people fold up, like, a counterpoint to that to be Gomez and Morticia, and framing that as couples goals, which I think is overly ambitious. I don't know that I, I would put I Love Lucy into that. Really, half the time it's Lucy, like, trying to, like, sneak one past Ricky. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Like, they don't have the same career goals for each other. Um, but no, most of that show is them just wanting to bone each other. Oh, I mean, they're into each other, but yeah. there's just as much bickering as in your typical family sitcoms. But I do feel like they <laughs> like each other. Can, sorry, there's a fire across the street. Okay, the fire across the street is contained, and we're back. <laughs> Getting back to the point that I was on. I mean, I understand why a lot of people idolize Gomez and Morticia, particularly in, in the 90s movies, but I feel that it was a bit overly idealized and unattainable, whereas Bob and Linda, you could be Bob and Linda. And they're both crazy about each other, and they have each other's back, but not in a way that feels like uh, it's in fantasy world, at least all the time. Oh yeah, I think they do a great job being like a couple, because they're clearly each other's best friends, but also they frustrate each other. Alright, before we do the plot recap, I figured it'd be a good idea to do a background of the show, because it's the first time I'm covering this particular property on the podcast. 
The principal creator of Bob's Burgers is a gentleman named Lauren Bouchard. Bouchard was a high school dropout who happened upon a gig on his uh, friend Tom Snyder's show, Dr. Katz, Professional Therapist. Oh my god, I remember Dr. Katz. Bouchard was a producer on the show when it went to series on Comedy Central, which led to a similar position on Science Court and then Home Movies. Oh, I loved Home Movies! After King of the Hill concluded, producer Jim Dodderieve partnered with Bouchard to pitch a replacement for the time slot. They came up with the concept of a family working at a struggling hamburger restaurant while pursuing an assortment of dead-end creative ventures. Bouchard wanted every member of the family to be a frustrated artist in some capacity. He felt that uh, working-class creatives were not well represented on network television at that point. I agree. So Linda has her Broadway ambitions and Bob is trying to be like creative with the burgers and Tina has her friend fiction and Gene has his music and so on and so forth. I was about to, I'm like, what is, what is, is Louise just, she's an evil mastermind and that involves a lot of creative thinking outside the box? Yeah, she's a schemer. Bouchard first conceptualized the Belchers as cannibals, but Fox executives told him to dial it back. What? The first episode cheekily nods at this when um, the Belchers are accused of making burgers with human meat. What, can you imagine, though? Like, did it, the show have the same tone, just they were cannibals? I don't think it'd be running for a decade plus if that's where, where he went with that. It's like a, instead of Sweeney Todd, it's Sweeney Bob. Mm. Sweeney Bob's Burgers. Bouchard hired local San Francisco artists to create a proof of concept, including character designer Jay Howell and background designer Simon Sierra Norris. Oh my god, hang on. So you you were an artist. <laughs> How did you feel initially about the Jaws in Bob's Burgers? Because everybody I know who draws has opinions. To be honest, the character designs in Bob's Burgers is something that I kind of had to work past. Right? Like, for example, whenever a character shows up who's supposed to be sexy, the show has to tell us that they are. <laughs> I, I know. Like, um, it was something that, like, the first time I, I saw the art for it, I'm like, I'm never watching this. I, like, there's no way I could. It's too frustrating. And then I fell in love with it. And I'm like, yeah, it's charming in its own way. The weird little no-jaw people. Yeah, feels very like 90s indie comic. <laughs> a test episode surrounded patriarch Bob forgetting about his wedding anniversary to his wife Linda. Fox liked the footage and ordered 13 episodes, although the characters would be altered significantly before the show premiered. The most notable change was with the elder son Daniel being changed to eldest daughter Tina. Bouchard liked Dan Mintz's performance as Daniel and decided to just have him keep voicing Tina. <laughs> That's how we got Tina. Yeah, when Bouchard talks about the voice acting, he usually frames it around, I just want to hear my friend's silly voices come out of this cartoon mouth. I just find that instantly amusing, That's which does explain cute. a lot of the creative choices. That's so cute. I love it. The first season of the show received mixed reviews, but earned steady ratings. Critics grew kinder by the time season two rolled around, and soon enough, Bob's Burgers yielded a level of acclaim comparable to King of the Hill. Like that program, Bob's Burgers is frequently praised as a consistently entertaining sitcom that places character-driven humor above the shock value jokes of a lot of other adult animated programs. I also think that King of the Hill has a lot of heart, like the same kind of feel you get from Bob's Burgers. Yeah, I was never a huge King of the Hill fan. I, um, I I caught enough episodes that I find That's My Purse, I Don't Know You to be inherently funny. That's because that's amazing. Yeah, sorry, continue. Yeah, but I, I do think that it has comparable vibes. Any episode with Bobby in it makes me happy, so having them have that like little Bobby-colored kid just... Bob's Burgers has gotten 13 Emmy nods so far and has won twice, both of which were for Outstanding Animated Program. It also has won five Annies, mostly in the writing and voice acting categories. Is that, I don't know much about anything, um, is that unusual for an animated series? No, uh, the Annies are like an award show exclusively for cartoons. Well, not that one, the other one. Oh, yeah, the Emmys, often, yeah, network cartoons get nominated year after year after year. The Simpsons gets outstanding animated program every year, seemingly. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, that's not unusual, but... Still good for them. Yeah. 
Achievement. All right, and now for the plot recap of the film. It opens with Bob and Linda Belcher getting denied an extension on their loan from First Oceanside Bank. And, and unless they pay it back all within a week, their restaurant equipment will be repossessed. This is very typical for them, which we'll be getting at in the, in the themes. They try to ask their landlord, Mr. Calvin Fishoder, if they can skip rent for a month in order to cover their expense, and he gives a non-committal maybe answer. Things are complicated, however, when a sinkhole forms in front of the restaurant and then a skeleton is discovered inside of it. The body belongs to a disgruntled employee of the Wonder Wharf amusement park that is owned by Fish Odor. Police then discover a bullet from Fish Odor's gun in the corpse's ribs and charge Fish Odor with murder. Bob and Linda are deeply worried by this revelation as they will certainly lose the restaurant if Fish Odor is convicted. Convinced of Fish Odor's innocence, the Belcher children Louise, Jean, and Tina skip school so they can investigate the murder. After interviewing several Wonder Wharf employees, they end up, eventually, in a secret clubhouse located underneath the Molehill Ride at Wonder Wharf. There, they discover Calvin Fish Odor hiding out with his brother Felix and their cousin-slash-family lawyer Grover. Calvin intends to flee the country in a novelty submarine ride. Wait, 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 sorry. I know I, I'm trying to let you get through it without picking at it too much, but did you appreciate when Grover sang that he sounded like the puppet Grover? Because I appreciated that. Yes, that was a nice touch. And um, to answer the question you asked me before we started recording, my favorite part of the movie is the villain song. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. I just like the, the way he intoned his lines while he was sing rapping over it. I liked his um, the second part that he gets. Um, the, the first one isn't my favorite with the weird, awkward falsetto, but like once he gets into it, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I can take or leave the falsetto bit, but like the talky part in the middle. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. Calvin intends to flee the country in a novelty submarine ride, but things take a turn when Louise sees a photo that shows Grover wearing a cufflink that was found on the skeleton, thus proving that he was the murderer. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, at the restaurant, Bob, Linda, and their friend Teddy try to drum up some business by selling burgers at Wonder Wharf using a portable food stand. They initially make a good amount of money, but they incense the carnies by knocking over the uh, little memorial they have to the dead carny. Cotton Candy Dan. Yeah, Cotton Candy Dan. I think he sells hot dogs. It's really fun to say Cotton Candy Dan, <laughs> so like, if you're listening and you haven't said it yet, just... Take a moment now and say Cotton Candy Dan. Brighten your day. They are chased into the vicinity of Mole Hill where they discover the children's bikes and then stumble into the secret clubhouse just as Grover is revealed as the killer. Now, pointing a spear gun at his seven hostages, Grover reveals his plan in song. <laughs> your favorite part of the movie. Yeah, he killed the carny in order to frame Calvin, and now he intends to kill both him and Felix, burn down Wonder Wharf using a fuse, and thereby inherit the family trust money. Calvin and Felix are then placed into the submarine and cast into the sea to drown. Grover then turns his attention to the Belchers, but they had gotten just enough time to escape in a go-kart. Grover chases the family to the restaurant and buries them in the sinkhole. Fortunately, the family is launched to safety when they break a water main. Racing back to Wonder Wharf, Louise stops the fuse, the police apprehend Grover, the fish odors are rescued, and the family gets just enough time to pay off the loan. And that's the film, more or less. I didn't really touch upon the subplot motivations. Each of the kids get a little arc that they have to go through. Like, Tina wants to summon up the courage to uh, ask Jimmy Jr. to be her... Um, Summer boyfriend. Yeah, Louise is taunted for being a baby by a classmate and spends the whole movie trying to be brave. She's the one who stumbles across the skeleton because she thinks that if she's filmed going down into the sinkhole, that'll dispel everything said. And then Jean just wants to rock out, built a little napkin percussion instrument and nobody likes it. He has a fantasy where aliens show up and... We're not thinking we're going to blow up your planet, but it's still on the table. If you play one more note. <laughs> uh, no, I, I like the subplots a lot because it like builds this whole separate theme that starts with Bob. And it's like his self-doubt like infected all of his kids. So they all have to like learn to find their own confidence again. It's nice. And for the development of this film, 20th Century Fox announced the Bob's Burgers movie in 2017, stating that it'd premiere in 2020. A new, wow. 
a, a new division of the studio, initially called Fox Family, was created to produce and distribute the Bob's Burgers film and other Fox TV shows getting film adaptations. After Disney bought Fox's IP in 2019, Fox Family was rebranded into 20th Century Family in order to distinguish its fare from remaining Fox properties, particularly Fox News. <laughs> Sorry. It's weird. A couple of weeks ago, Fox News announced that it was starting a film division. And it was like, you sold your existing film division to Disney. Well, also, like, do you know what the news is? Like, are they going to do little reels before movies again? No, they're going to make right-wing propaganda films. You know, like what Ben Shapiro's doing and, like, those Christian cultist movies that Kevin Sorbo's in. I mean, it's like that. This makes me sad. Does that make you sad? I'm surprised that it took him this long to actually get into that hustle. Anyways, to date, Bob's Burgers is the only film released under the 20th century banner. It's a good place to start. Bar was set high. Bouchard and his writing partner Nora Smith submitted a script in 2018. It was structured as a musical from the jump. I'm not surprised by this. Some people were, which is weird because there's a little song like at the end of every Bob's Burgers episode and there are musical numbers peppered throughout the series. Yeah, there's a lot of musical numbers for that show and a lot of the characters are very musically driven. Yeah. Uh, the film itself takes place between seasons 12 and 13 of Bob's Burgers, although it was made concurrently with season 11. The sinkhole can be seen forming as the sidewalk breaks up in several episodes in season 12. Like with most animated fare at the time, the Bob's Burgers movie was recorded remotely due to the COVID-19 restrictions. Yeah, that's the thing that Cheryl was alluding to when I said <laughs> that it was planned to be released in 2020. Most episodes of Bob's Burgers are recorded with the main cast all in the same room so they can react and play off each other in real time. Which I think is so cute and charming and I love when studios do that. Yeah, it's fairly unusual for animated programs to be recorded that way, especially if we're talking about big tentpole movies that feature lots of celebrity voice actors because getting them all in the same room at the same time is a hassle and it's just easier to have everybody give their lines sometimes over the phone but Bouchard feels that it's better if the cast are like looking at each other while they're reading their lines and he's probably right I think that's a big part of why there's so much good interplay between everybody yeah and, you looked at me when you said that and yeah. made that point and I really appreciated that we just shared a moment yeah finger guns <laughs> we finger gunned Anyways, the way a typical episode is done is that Bouchard will just have everybody read through the script as written, and then afterwards they'll do a couple of takes with ad-libs, and then editors will pick and choose which parts that they want to put in the final episode. I think that adds a degree of playfulness that transfers to the way the series is, its general vibe and atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, like, um, a lot of the dialogue feels very organic, so, like, yeah, they, they have a good um, system. Bouchard insisted upon hand-drawn cell animation for the film. And he, it's sexy! Sorry. He didn't want it to look all that different from a typical Bob's Burgers episode, although he took advantage of the extra budget to add more depth and shadow and dynamic layouts and backdrops here and there, particularly the scene where Louise is chasing to get the fuse. And then way more extra characters and all that awkward dancing. I love how they animated the awkward dancing. Yeah, Linda dances like Pennywise. Like, if you haven't seen this movie, it doesn't look like a, a really professional theater production. It looks like your local theater's theater production. Which is what they're going for. So yeah, most of the film is done with hand-drawn uh, cell animation with some cut-out stop motion thrown in here and there. Bob's Burgers has the distinction of being the last film featuring work by animator Dale Bayer, who was a supervising animator on the Disney Robin Hood movie. That was his first gig. He then worked on The Rescuers, The Black Cauldron, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Lion King, The Emperor's New Groove, Frozen, Moana, and many others. Jesus, that's a resume. Another person who worked on this film that died during production was storyboardist Tuck Tucker. He started his career working on The Little Mermaid and then did storyboards for Nickelodeon, most notably on Hey Arnold, SpongeBob SquarePants, and The Fairly Odd Parents. So uh, he was. So these people were basically just our childhood. Yeah, yeah, they, they had a hand in a lot of things we watched way over and over again when we were nine. The film is dedicated to them both. 
The Fish Odors Clubhouse is a nod to Disneyland's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea exhibit from 1955. And that leads me to seg into the cast. I guess the first person we should talk about is, speaking of people who just appear throughout our childhood, H. John Benjamin as <laughs> primarily Bob, but also Jimmy Jr., Ms. LeBons, and Koshi Kopi, both of them. I love his Ms. LeBons, by the way. It's just always the same delivery, but it's perfect every time. <laughs> yeah, they know when to put her in. She's, she's a minor background character who just chimes in when it's exactly right. <laughs> no. I guess Benjamin doesn't have much of a range in terms of character voices, but that does feel cozy, getting back to the coziness of Bob's Burgers. I just like hearing that guy's voice. It's true. It doesn't matter what he's in. He can be Coach McGurk. He can be Archer. Wherever he is, he's adorable. Yeah, obviously he and Bouchard go way back because, you know, Benjamin was on Dr. Katz. <laughs> so they definitely know how to interact and work with each other, and that definitely comes across in the readings here. Bob anchors the show and is understated dry delivery whenever he expresses worry or anxiety. Benjamin is very good at projecting unearned confidence, which doesn't happen too much with the Bob character. That's more of a Coach McGurk and Archer thing. Yep, yep. <laughs> no, the, the Bob one is definitely the one that reminds me of my husband, not the others. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, the next person I have written down is Dan Mintz as Tina. Oh, I'm so curious. We have to look this person up afterwards. They need to know what they look like. Just looks like a dude. We've covered on previous episodes the wish fulfillment fantasy as it applies to girl characters, particularly on millennial cartoons, where you have these idealized versions that we imagine that we were when we were looking back on what we were like during our awkward developmental years. We, we'd like to think that we're, we were as idealistic and smart as Lisa Simpson, or as resourceful as Matilda Wormwood, or as dry and witty as Daria Morgendorfer, but no, we were Tina. So... I never actually identified with any of those characters. Yeah, I'm talking to the wrong person. I should be talking to Sylvan or Sarah. As a kid, I was like, oh my god, Ickis or Zazu from The Lion King. So I'm the wrong person. Even with Futurama, I was like, yeah, scrub me. You get it. And I get the point of Daria and Lisa, and I'm glad they're there, and it's nice to have figures like that who are just, like, power fantasies, but... No, you want to be Maggie if you want to be anybody from The Simpsons. Come on! <laughs> but, I mean, Tina's necessary. Tina's just like, this is who you actually were, and that's okay. And Tina is a badass. She's always stressed out, but she always shows up. Uh... <laughs> she doesn't back down. Eventually, she gets it done. <laughs> All right, next I have written down is Eugene Merman as Gene. Oh my gosh. I think everybody loves Gene, but he has to grow on you. I think Gene just underscores a big part of how Bob's Burgers works for me when other things don't, because I remember when Seth Green is talking about his approach to Chris Griffin on Family Guy, where he's just saying, the whole point of Chris is that the louder you say the random nonsense, the funnier it is. And that is very obvious in his performance as Chris Griffin, but I find Chris Griffin annoying as hell, even though Gene is essentially the same character, but I like Gene. It took me a while to figure out how they're different from each other and how I can like Gene and not really care for Chris. Gene is an artist that is motivated and loving and supports everybody around him. That's part of it, but your explanation also indicates that they put effort into fleshing Gene out. Oh, 100%. I also just love how much his mom is his best friend and he's fine with that. There are layers to Gene. He isn't just loud brushstrokes who are just there to yell out the reference joke. But yeah, no, that I think that's why you have to like Gene will slow like creep up on you as like one of your favorites because you're so used to the caricature and then you're just like, but he's so charming. Yeah, I think that also compares to say like Meg Griffin is supposed to be the awkward teenage girl like Tina, but Meg is just treated like a punching bag on Family Guy. I love that they stop even trying to give that character lines. I don't know. I, I don't really watch Family Guy. Yeah, me neither. Maybe Family Guy's turned around, but I, I doubt it. I just assumed when they did the next spinoff, like, not spinoff, but when they did um, American Dad, that 
they've just, you know, moved on. I've heard that American Dad is actually good, and that even if you hate Family Guy, you might like American Dad, but I don't want to give it a chance. Uh-uh. Anyways, uh, next we have John Roberts, who voices Linda and Jocelyn. Oh, so good! <laughs> Yeah, Linda's a fan favorite character, and I think a lot of that is the voice. Roberts is a middle-aged gay man who's doing an impression of his mom, and that comes across. That all tracks. She's a confident ray of sunshine that believes in you, and you believe in yourself because of her. Also, she's always singing. Yeah, uh, Roberts uh, likes to record synth pop in his spare time, and there's a video where he's just, like, dancing around in a George Michael jacket in bisexual lighting, because, of course. I mean, that just sounds like Christmas card. Like, let's do it! <laughs> and the fact that everything that bought... Is it the freedom jacket? Yeah, it's like the freedom jacket. Yes! Sorry. You know, like, everything that Bob says is just, like, understated and vaguely pessimistic and irritated. And Linda is just there to be the yang to his yin. They complete each other. 100% pushing him up that hill. (laughs) He is not Sisyphus, he's the boulder. (laughs) No, you're droopy, Bob. You can be dreamy, Bob. Here's that smile. Love you, Linda. Love you too, Bobby. No, but that's me and my husband. That is always me and my husband. And like H. John Benjamin, our next person shows up in a lot of cartoons doing very similar voices every time, but I'm always happy to hear her voice. Christian Shaw is Louise. Is she the lady from Flight of the Concords, the super fan? Yeah, that's her. Oh, I love her too. So my first exposure was Flight of the Concord, so like that's what I picture every time. Yeah, that's the first thing I saw her in, but I, most people know her from all the voice acting work that she's done, and she's done a lot, including on several beloved cult animated shows like Bob's Burgers. I suppose her voice could be a grower. Some people weren't crazy about her at first, but I, I don't know. I liked her right away. And while Louise was like the seventh or eighth character I've seen Shaw play, um, yeah, I gravitated towards it pretty quickly. And I think Louise is currently my anchor role for her. Well, she always, like, a, it feels like, in my opinion, that she always approaches a role, like, dead on. Like, she commits immediately to these extreme characters. I don't know, like, I think she just did it in a really charming way. Out of the main cast, Shawl is the only lady who is voicing a lady. Tina and Linda are both voiced by dudes. And Shawl did bitch out Bouchard for doing that, and he started hiring more female voice actors because of her. It kind of makes me think of um, South Park, which was, like, almost all guys, too, for a while. I think South Park was mostly all guys for a very long time because they were making them in time to react to current events and there were only four voice actors. Yeah. And there's one lady doing everyone and that hasn't changed. Oh, they didn't get a bunch more ladies? No, they only got one lady and she died and they replaced her with a new lady. Oh. Well, okay. Alright, then we have David Wayne as Grover Fish Odor. He sounds like the puppet. <laughs> There's a little inside joke in, and he sounds like the, the Muppet. Wayne wasn't the first person to voice Grover, but he is the most consistent. He gets a lot more to do than he has in any previous Bob's Burgers episode, because he's the central villain, and he gets a villain song. I think they do a really good job emoting. That, might, that man, like the, the cartoon character, has the sassiest expressions. <laughs> it's like I totally have a three-hour gym body. <laughs> Just, like, if he's slowly, like, deciphering or slowly getting offended, like, every time. Like, they do a really good job with his eyebrows. Just the fish odors in general. A a lot of effort is put into what they're supposed to look and sound like. Uh, Then we have Zach Galifianakis as Felix Fish Odor. I usually don't care for Galifianakis. I'm not really into the Hangover movies. Most of the other things, I think he's a bit much. But he works as Felix. I like Felix, but I don't know who the voice actor is. Have you seen The Hangover? No. Oh, eh, it's probably not your thing. Yeah, I don't think that movie was made for me. In live action roles, he's in a lot of dude bro movies. Has he been in any action movies? I don't think so. I mean, probably. He was the Joker in the Lego Batman movie. Well, I thought that was good. But I mean, you kind of have to be extra to be the Joker, so I don't know if that just proved your point. (laughs) 
you know, I like this his little fleeing the country sing song as he's packing and he's he's trying to reconnect with the uh, felon that he dated over the phone and she's just not that into him and he's trying so hard. Oh, I like when Tina's asking him all those big life love questions and he's just like, wow, look at the atmosphere on the other side of the room. <laughs> Felix has big fail son energy. Oh my gosh. And like, he like really is like a fun support to the fish odors being like the 1%. He's from the bad side of the family, the poor side. He means they're bad because they're poor. <laughs> For the good side of the family, Kevin Klein is Calvin Fish Odor. I feel that Klein in general is just perpetually underrated as an actor. Like, he's always in stuff, but I don't think he's ever been a big star. I guess his one shot was Wild Wild West, and that didn't work out for anybody. Oh my gosh, Kevin Smith has the best stories about that. Sorry, keep going. One film that I, I always put on as a comfort watch, and I'll probably do on the show at some point, is the like 1999 A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Klein is bottom in that, and he's delightful as bottom. I don't, I don't think that I've seen that one, so you're going to have to show it to me. That's that's a good one to throw on the list. Michelle Pfeiffer's in it, Callista Flockhart, baby Christian Bale. My favorite one is the one that they made for like a made-for-TV movie on Logo. So like, I mean, you're going to have to beat the Logo version, but let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Getting into Mr. Fish Odor, he's an interesting contrast to other fictional billionaires because while Fish Odor is less evil than Mr. Burns, that might make him an even harsher critique of neoliberal capitalism in the 1%. Fish Odor is largely barely interested in the community that he dominates. Despite this, his caprices have massive effects on every human in town. It's kind of an indication of how letting five people control half the wealth in America might not be the best choice, especially if one of these five people uses their wealth to buy Twitter on a whim and build faulty Mars rockets while crushing unionization efforts at his factories and encouraging sexual harassment at these factories. How do you encourage sexual harassment? I don't know that I want to know this answer, but I do need to know it. I think a lot of it is just looking the other way. Okay, so like making it so that it, it can grow and spread like a virus. Because I'm like, are there posters? <laughs> I don't think there, are, there aren't posters, but just encouraging through willful neglect. During my period at a nursing home that I'm not going to disclose, the administrator in my department had a very boys-will-be-boys attitude towards that sort of thing, and um, it went to dark places. Yeah, there's a lot of checks and balances that you have to overlook to um, to make to like let that like not happen. But I, I, I imagine if you get deep pockets, then it's just easier. He yeah. said, she said gets a lot of people out of sticky situations, and it's terrible. Yeah, if you have enough capital at your disposal, you're just not allowed to fail. Yeah, you can just make problems go away. There were some recastings in the Bob's Burgers movie. Uh, Mickey, the former bank robber turned carny, is voiced in this film by John Q. Cuban, since Bill Hader wasn't available. Olson Benner, who originally voiced Pamela Adlon, is now voiced by Nicole Byer, since in the wake of the anti-racist activism following the murder of George Floyd, cartoons began changing its policy on hiring white actors to portray black characters. Which, like, I mean, I'm gonna say about time, which I feel like everybody kind of leans into, but like also like, damn, it's so weird that it took that long. And it also, I have mixed feelings about it because sometimes it feels like putting a band-aid on a flesh wound. Historically, yes, people of color have been disadvantaged by white supremacist policies in all facets, but in Hollywood, this, since this is what we're talking about, it's undeniably a good thing to promote equity going forward. Still, this isn't a substitute to substantive change in police accountability or the prison industrial complex, which underpins the Floyd murder. Getting rid of the racist pancake mascot is definitely nice, but the war on drugs is still happening, and the aforementioned five people who own half the wealth don't seem to be eager to alter any of the things that maintain their comfort at the expense of literally everyone else. I have a positive twist for this one. Hang on, I can do it, I can do it. But now you have a model that's proving that it's successful and achievable, so it's something to build off of. 
Uh, yeah, I suppose you can make a baby steps argument. I, yeah, because, like, without something to prove as, like, a test, you don't, you know, it's a lot harder to, to build something. I don't know, I got to be positive. <laughs> it was probably small solace to a guy who's doing 30 years for dealing crack when the guy who was caught dealing coke was able to buy his way to liberty. But, uh, yeah, getting to that, Jimmy Pesto, Bob's nemesis, originally oh. voiced by Jay Johnston. You and I still can't believe it. I'm so happy. But also, like, that's such good casting. It's a terrible thing to say, but it's so good. Pesto appears in the movie briefly, but has no lines. Johnston had been fired from Bob's Burgers following his participation in the failed coup attempt at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th of 2021. Like, he was just just spotted there, marching and screaming along with all the other neo-Nazis. I'm just so happy. Like, I'm so happy that they were like, yeah, you don't get to be on the, you don't get to be on the show anymore. I don't know, I just pissed away a real easy paycheck. But I'm also so happy that they totally cast an asshole to voice an asshole. They're like, you have the voice for this character. He is convincing his pesto. (laughs) For the music for this film, four songs were written for the movie by Bouchard and Smith. The score was composed, orchestrated, and conducted by Tim Davies, who has a very lengthy resume as a composer and conductor. However, the only thing that he's done that we've covered on a prior episode is WandaVision. Oh, I really liked WandaVision, though. One song was not included in the commercially released soundtrack because its lyrics had spoilers about the killer, which we already discussed. It's just Grover detailing his plan. Yeah, I, I, um, as soon as I left the theater, I couldn't stop listening to Lucky Ducks for, like, three weeks. It was terrible, and it was starting to upset my family and loved ones. But, um, yeah, I did listen to the soundtrack on repeat for a while when I was driving places. I didn't even think that the, uh, villain song was in there. Yeah, villain song's not in there. I mean, it gets interrupted a lot. I feel like it would be hard to... Put it in anyway. Oh, I mean, there are dialogue exchanges, but in a very Broadway way, and usually those things make it onto original cast recordings, and at least musical theater nerds don't seem to mind it. It does have a vibe comparable to, I, I would say, the Bob's Burgers soundtracks that were released. Uh, I think there's been two thus far. I got into the series through my ex, Becky, We which is one of those things that we put on when we felt like eating in and not doing anything. It's a very good show for that sort of thing. Absolutely. And she liked the show to the point where the songs were on her Spotify playlist. That's really cute. <laughs> Music in the trailer for the Bob's Burgers movie was also used in the Simpsons movie, the Peanuts movie, and South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. So maybe this is turning into like a Wilhelm scream thing where it's like an inside joke. I I mean, that's fine. It must be cheap too if everybody's using it. (laughs) The movie had a budget of about 38 million with 20 million tacked on for marketing. This remained more or less the same as the film was delayed for two years because of the COVID-19 pandemic. They didn't want to release it until people felt safe going into theaters, which apparently 2022 was the day to do that. Except it wasn't. Bob's Burgers uh, made $34.2 million in box office. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah, that's technically a flop, but I doubt anyone is sweating over it. Most of the budget was put up by Fox way before the Disney sale, so none of the suits at Disney were especially worried. Uh, they might have just put it out there to fulfill some kind of contractual obligation. They put it up against Top Gun. They knew it was going to get buried by Top Gun. I mean, everybody... <laughs> In my D&D party saw, like, both of the movies. So I'm like, well, that's fair. But there's enough room in your schedule to see Top Gun and Bob's Burgers. So shame on you. I mean, I don't think that the theatrical release was seen as the main point because it was hitting streaming services, like, what, three months later? Actually, I mean, maybe. But I didn't notice it (laughs) until a few weeks ago. But I'm bad at noticing things like that. Bob's Burgers is a popular TV show that is frequently binged on streaming services, case in point, us. So I'm sure it's doing fine. I'm sure it's making money. Whenever I travel on business trips, it's like the one thing that's always on TV. And I'm like, oh, it feels good to not be alone with Bob's Burgers. Yeah, I imagine way more people are going to watch it after eating pizza at home with their significant other. Like, that's what the movie's for. And that is where it's going to find its audience. Don't know if that'll mean uh, that another theatrical film is coming out anytime soon. Uh, Everyone involved in the creative 
creative side has expressed interest, but uh, who can say? They better do a Thanksgiving one, because they have, like, we were talking earlier, they have strong Thanksgiving episodes. Yeah, I mean, Bob's Burgers always touches upon every major holiday every season, and lots of sitcoms do that, but unlike most of those, I think Bob's Burgers Thanksgiving episodes are the strongest holiday ones. I agree with you. Also, we play one of them every year at our Thanksgiving, so... Since there aren't that many, like, really great Thanksgiving movies, we'll just do, like, three Bob's Burgers episodes for the podcast when that week comes up. But anyways, on to themes... Alright, I explored a couple of things already that I wanted to talk about in both the opening and throughout this rundown, but one thing that I wanted to expand upon a bit was the depiction of Tina's sexuality in the show. Oh, I love- okay, um, I'm curious about your take, hang on. Okay, uh, one of the most relatable and memorable elements of Bob's Burgers is Tina's butt fixation and her awkward attempts at exploring her horniness. Uh, (laughs) The main reason Tina's gender was switched before the show was even picked up was because it was feared that an awkwardly horny teenage boy would be perceived as a predatory creep by the audience. And And it's not threatening from a little girl. Yeah, it's less threatening if it's a 14-year-old girl. I have mixed feelings about this. I do think that teen girl sexuality is not handled especially well in most North American film and television. You don't say! And yeah, I feel that Tina is a step in the right direction. She comes off as an emotionally honest and cathartic storytelling method for approaching how uncomfortable people feel at that particular age for feelings that are very natural and things that we are told to stuff down or not express. She is like the epitome of awkward. If she does herself doesn't feel awkward about it, everybody around her, like you get the storytelling beats that it's just awkward. It's great. So yeah, all that's good, but at the same time, teen boys definitely need a Tina as well, and I think our media fails them almost as badly as it fails teen girls. I know that could be a controversial statement for some people, but I I stand behind it. 15-year-old boys, by and large, are sexually frustrated and insecure and desperately need someone to listen to them and give them guidance. And if we don't do a better job with talking to them about these issues that I've mentioned, they'll end up turning to guys like Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson, and nobody wants that. All I can think of right now is, like, all of the weirdly sexualized little boys in the movies and shows we watched as kids. Like, my favorite one, everybody's all excited in the area right now, Hocus Pocus. Mm -mm. The little boy in Hocus Pocus who gets to go on his first date and everybody just, like, really gives it to him for being a virgin. And he's, like, 15, like, the whole time. No, I I agree with you. We need more Tinas. I think that there needs to be a, like, this is, it's okay to be curious about it. It's okay to talk about it characters. Instead of the whole, like, you're a virgin. Uh, Or there's something wrong with you if you haven't had a bunch of sex at 15. Yeah, or there's something wrong with you if you like tits. Or staring at tits makes you a bad person. It's like, no, it's okay to like tits. Tits are great. I like tits too. There's a way to like tits and also humanize the people who have them. Right? And and, 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 and treat them like people and not objects. And there are ways to talk to people respectfully that you are interested in in that way. And please don't ask Andrew Tate about it. (laughs) So yeah, uh, clearly we're just saying that we want to like promote Tina for like sexual sainthood of all of the preteens out there. Yeah, no, this is a healthy boys thing. (laughs) Be emotionally healthy boys who are not afraid to talk about stuff like this. Don't stuff it down. Don't let it poison you and embitter you and make you red-pilled. And yeah, this is something that we have to pick up the slack on because if there isn't anyone out there who is willing to talk about this stuff candidly, they're going to turn to somebody and the people who are talking the loudest are also awful. I hope as like an aunt and uncle we've made like a safe space for our nephew to talk about stuff like that like i don't know though it's just such an awkward phase but like i feel like kids need to be way more comfortable with just being bad at things it's okay to not be good at being in relationships or even like talking to people about stuff nobody's gonna be upset if you can't get words out properly 
you're going to kick yourself in the teeth. You're going to put your foot in your mouth. Even if you do everything as honorably as you can manage, it's not always going to go the way that you want it to. And yeah, you can't let it get to you like that. It's that's easier said than done. Holy shit. I was not (laughs) great at any of this back in those days. Most people also, like, the best, the biggest takeaway that I got suddenly in my 20s when I noticed that I was, like, okay at that stuff was people don't notice as much when you fail, and they definitely notice when you're confident. So, like, even if you, like, slide on the floor, as long as you do it with, like, a fake sense of confidence, they're like, that was a really impressive dip, and you're like, it's what I meant to do, it's great. One thing that really helped me when I was like, oh, 16 or 17 is like, hey, if, uh, if you're talking to somebody you're romantically interested in and you want to compliment them, don't compliment them on a physical element of their body. Yeah. Like, pick a sartorial element, something that they chose, something that they did for themselves and is reflective of their personality. Like, even if they don't like you that way, they're not going to interpret that as some kind of creepy come on. It it might even brighten their day. I think that's amazing, yeah. Because you can't really take that much credit for how your body looks. It's like, hey, cool, thanks. I'll tell my parents that you think they did a good job. Anyways, the next thing I wrote down, which I have touched upon already in this recording, but I think bears a little bit of expansion, is class resentment. A lot of people, at least a lot of people in my social circle, have looked at Bob's Burgers as a sort of classism thing, uh, looking at it through the perspective of the way wealth is accumulated in American society and how it is unequally distributed and it allocates a great deal of power to a number of people who are not as particularly qualified to wield it, as I already mentioned. I'll reiterate that show to run the town and his whims can either save or destroy thousands of lives and this is not something he takes even remotely seriously the gingerbread gun episode (laughs) (laughs) i think the one that points this out the most is when he like dangles the carrot of a rent reduction in the air in order to get everybody to participate in like a paintball tournament on his grounds (laughs) sorry Fish Oder's not Mr. Burns again. He's not an especially awful person, but his priorities are going to be the preservation of his wealth and comfort. Uh, the system is set up to protect Fish Oder's interests, and as I already mentioned, it is impossible for him to fail. His fail son brother Felix gets like a million chances, even though he's objectively terrible at everything he tries. Except for fashion. I do like his little sailor jacket. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, not every billionaire is Mr. Burns. I mean, almost no billionaires are Mr. Burns, except maybe the Koch brothers. But I do think that every billionaire is at least a little bit like Mr. Fishoder. I think so. Like, the whole, um, just out of touch with the struggle for the Burger family. It makes me think of when Jeff Bezos shot himself into not-quite-outer space. Like, have you ever heard Jeff Bezos talk? No. It's weird now that I pointed that out, right? He's one of the richest people in the world. His name is in headlines everywhere. He owns the Washington fucking Post. You'd think that he'd be more of a public figure, uh, the way his name gets mentioned. But yeah, look up like a speech he gives or an interview he gives. He doesn't come off as an especially smart guy. I imagine he employs smart people. He's just a guy who had a lot of capital at his back and was in the right place at the right time when he came up with, I'm going to sell books online. And he had connected friends who kept dumping money into Amazon until it eventually became profitable. Like Amazon was in the red for decades before it started going the other way around. Like it got to the point where it just wasn't allowed to fail. Not unlike say Uber or Netflix. And he's not particularly insightful, he's not particularly bright, he doesn't know anything or can do anything that other people aren't capable of. He just fell ass backwards into billions upon billions of dollars and was predatory and amoral enough to take advantage of people to the point where it just kept consolidating towards him. And that comes across in his speech, especially the way he talks about how going up into space isn't wasteful because he also throws a few shekels over to environmental causes and hey once he's in space he's gonna look down on earth and see it in a whole new perspective man because when you're in space there aren't any borders believe it or not if you look down on actual images of earth there isn't a Rand McNally map I mean it would 
be nice to have one border stay there, you know, the ozone layer, but you're, you're right. It's not as many border as there used to be. That, that actually reminds me of an op-ed I read years and years ago by an astronaut, and it stuck with me. And he talked about, like, the cliche about looking at Earth from the International Space Station, how everybody's like, ooh, there aren't any borders. And it's like, it's not like you were expecting to see borders. <laughs> That's weird, right? But one thing that did come out to me was the ozone layer. It's incredibly fragile looking. <laughs> It's just this little whiff of hazy almost blue. It makes you think that, oh, it wouldn't take much to disrupt that marble, would it? Oh, now I'm feeling happy and sad at the same time, and I don't know how to describe that. Is manic? Is that what the <laughs> Yes. Anyways, Bezos doesn't do that because he's, he's really in it for himself. He wouldn't get to the station he is in life unless he was that self-interested and that willing to just slit everyone's throats. Can you imagine, like, what, how fragile your ego has to be that you need to propel yourself into space to feel validated to yourself? Yeah, yeah, I don't get it, but at the same time, I just, I, I don't have it in me to be a billionaire. Not that I have the assets to get started on that path, but even then, I wouldn't be able to leapfrog over anyone. I, I wouldn't be able to cause so much ruin, even if I don't have to look people in the eyes. I, I'm not saying I'm the most ethical person on the, on the world. I think most people think this way. It's just that the five people who own half the wealth don't. Anyways, that's everything in my notes. Is there anything you'd like to talk about in the Bob's Burgers movies before we sign off? Right, we were talking about Bob's Burgers. Well, yeah, that's Bob's Burgers does have a sense of stability because, once again, it's trying to have that coziness to it, but it also just reemphasizes the dead-endness. We know that Bob isn't going to lose his restaurant because that would end the series, but that's always hanging over him, and he's just working and working as hard as he can, and nothing ever gets better. I mean, I don't know, like, I kind of hope that when the show's ready to end, either it ends with him getting success or it ends with them just closing up shop. Oh, boy. Right? Just a rusty dagger in the heart. Well, no, because they're ready to move on to new things. I'm sorry. I'm just too optimistic, I think, as a person. I'm okay when ventures have to end. And I don't feel like them, you know, moving on to a different type of employment should ruin their family and cause them all to die. I just love that that's his dramatic response every time. It's just like, we're all going to live on the street and die. I'm like, you're a two-income household. You can both get jobs. Like, other jobs. They have a bunch of friends in the area that are all local business owners. Like, I don't think they would fail. Yeah, it is nice to think that the community would rally around them, and maybe they would, but... They owe them a lot of favors. And at the same time, the way things are structured, a lot of people are a couple of bad months from losing everything that they have, which is something that the pandemic taught us. Oh, yeah, well, no, that's 100% true. Okay, well, if uh, that's everything, thanks for listening to this episode about the Bob's Burgers movie. Join us next time for something else.